Welcome to Value Added, the real estate podcast where we speak with the brightest minds in the world of real estate who provide, create, and realize value in an ever-changing market. If you're a real estate professional delivering value to your clients, an investor creating value not seen by others, or a busy professional who passively invests in real estate to grow the value of their hard-earned dollar, then you're in the right place. And now your host, Nick Walters. Hey gang, welcome to another episode of Value Added, the real estate podcast. On today's episode, we're chatting with Elliot Horowitz. Elliot is the founder of Brooklyn, New York-based H Equities. H Equities provides bridge financing for commercial property. They seek acquisition opportunities, and they also participate in LP and GP equity in multifamily, mixed-use, and retail assets within the five boroughs of New York City, as well as other select markets on the East Coast. So without further ado... Let's get on with the show. Elliot Horowitz, welcome to the show. Great to have you. All right. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Nick. Thank you so much. So tell the listeners a little bit about your background in, uh, in commercial finance, um, even, even before if you were uh, you know, in something earlier. But tell us a little bit about your, your career up to this point. Should I go back to birth or just some more, more, more recent, more recent, right? <laughs> Once so, upon a time in a land far away. <laughs> by friends and family uh, investors, and we invest primarily on the equity side in multifamily projects. That's primarily been in New York, but we branched out a little bit to, um, to Atlanta, Florida, and uh, New Jersey. Uh, we've done a couple of development deals a few years ago, but nothing as of late, of the last few years in, in equity. And most of those properties are just cash flowing properties that have some rent upside and will you know, stick there for long periods of time and just to grow, you know, to grow that um, rents to that uh, portfolio. So you also are involved in commercial mortgage uh, brokerage as well as investment sales brokerage. Um, no walk bro- me through. Uh, no brokerage at all. We don't. No do brokerage. No, we're private investors. Again, a group of friends and family and some family offices who we've invested with or who could join us in the actual investment process. So walk me through the when, when did when did you uh, when did you start your um, your private private lending business? So it started about five years ago. Um, we were trying to buy buildings on our own, and I recognized that I didn't really want to be an operator. So what I decided to do was I decided to invest with other operators who already doing the hard work, and I would be either debt or equity, and specifically to the debt. The debt sort of evolved because we were buying buildings that required a lot of work and a lot of time to um, renovate units and turn the property over and whatnot. And there was like a, a, a lag time between the time you actually bought a property and got a return. Whereas with debt, we got an immediate return. So we started financing other borrowers and other buyers in the same areas that we were buying property to sort of get you know that short-term debt yield return, cash flow returns. And theoretically, it could have led, I thought at the time, it would lead to other equity investments. And it actually did. But some of my borrowers became equity so it became an interesting segue from the debt space into some equity transactions. You mentioned dipping your toe in other markets. Uh, New York City market, as we all know, is 
it, it's a it's a different beast uh, versus any other market around the country. Whether you're dealing with rent sta- stabilization laws, whether you're dealing with uh, the, just the overall barrier to entry in the market. But you mentioned the Atlanta market. How involved have you been in the Atlanta market uh, recently? It's it's one market that I'm involved with. Um, and tell us a little bit about the activity that you've been involved in the Atlanta market the last, call it, you know, few years. Sure. So it's only been about a year, right? So about a year ago, a friend of mine came to me and said, he's got a good friend buying a large property. It was 300, I think we bought 350 units uh, in the suburb of Atlanta called Lithonia, Georgia. And they said, look, we're looking for some equity. I said, okay, great. Let me speak to them. Turns out they're phenomenal, phenomenal people uh, who put a lot of money in the deal on their own, right? Which is great. So it's a New York-based family office that had a lot of a lot already going on in the Atlanta area with management and a lot of units already. So I felt for me, I'm not going to go on a plane and fly there and try to find a deal. Why not invest with somebody with experience in the area, with operational experience, with a lot of equity in the deal. So we invested in this transaction, 300, like I said, 50 units, you know, give or take, um, of which 270 had some upside to them to be renovated over time, which we've done over the last year. And it's been so far so good. It's been a nice, peaceful market. The rents are inexpensive, affordable to most people. Even when we raise the rents, they're affordable to most people. And it's been kind of stable. Even over the last couple of months, you know, the collections have been okay, pretty pretty good actually. And we're seeing nice rent increases. So I'm not the Atlanta maven, but I invested with somebody who is, which is sort of part of my business plan is to invest with people who are sort of experienced in their markets who can operate efficiently and, you know, and, and be good, good stewards of, our, of capital. So for that particular deal, how did your capital, um, how did it uh, uh, lay out in the cap stack? Were you, was your equity part of the, the were you a co-GP or an LP? Explain kind of how you were involved. In, in this specific case, we were straight LP, which is sort of unusual, but we, because we did a lot of LP deals years back, we kind of stopped doing it. But in this specific instance, because the quality of sponsorship in the deal was so outstanding, you know, class A across the board, um, with, with, with good referrals of people that I knew or, or I know who know them pretty well, uh, it became much easier to be just, a, my group became a straight LP investor. We have our own entity in the group of, of the equity, but we're just a straight LP and they've been excellent stewards of capital. So this was a, an existing relationship of yours, right? You mentioned it was a New York based family office. Uh, did they already have operation experience in Atlanta? Very much so. Very yeah. much so. Yeah, I'm sure that being an LP in a you know something that you don't normally do, it's a new market for you. Uh, you put a lot of trust into the the operator, the boots on the ground, so to speak, with regards to taking down a 300 plus unit um, in a market that you weren't necessarily familiar with. Correct? Right. These were, right. So these people, like I said, were class A all around, and it made it a lot easier. For me, because I just can't throw money around that quickly, right? But it made it a lot easier for me to make that decision because of the quality of sponsorship. Let's let's go back to your uh, underwriting properties, deals that are coming across your desk these days. Uh, how has underwriting changed now versus six months ago? Uh, what are you really focused on um, as you're throwing deals into your model and, and figuring it out if, if this is a good use of your your uh, your families, your, your private capital? So my model kind of starts up in my head, right? So I've always been a very conservative guy and I'm not really a big spreadsheet guy, right? So 
over the last year or two, I lost, I don't know, 50, 60, 100, I, I don't even know exactly, different loan lending opportunities to very high-levered, low-rate providers, right? A lot of those guys aren't doing anything, right? Because they had too much, you know, nobody knew COVID was going to happen, right? But you know, I, I've been waiting three years for the market to pull back, and I expect it to happen at some point, right? Nobody knew why. The fact, the fact that the lending market has pulled back uh, doesn't surprise me. You know, the reason that it's happened because a virus came and knocked out the economy is, you know, quite, quite surprising, right? Very surprising. But when I look at a property now, an example being, and I've always been conservative. I know somebody who has a $3 million property in Manhattan. They need to borrow $600,000, right? So to me, that's an easy loan, right? I don't have to think much. They paid $3 million for it a year ago. We can argue it's worth $3 million. We can argue it's worth $2 million. But I'm 110, I'm 110% certain it's not worth $600,000, right? So a loan like that is kind of fairly simple. doesn't require any fancy spreadsheet analysis. If you can't figure that out in about a minute, you, can't, you shouldn't be lending, right? More, more complicated is people who now need construction financing, right? So whereas we, we financed with a partner a construction loan in Greenpoint about nine, ten months ago, um, with a good borrower whose family that I knew and that all the equities, the families, we financed that construction loan. And I think it was 65 or 68% loan to cost at 9%. That same loan today, I wouldn't be doing, right? So I don't want to be doing a 9% construction loan because the the timetable to complete is going to be expanded. The market is clearly softened. I mean, clearly, clearly has softened. It's hard to argue that it hasn't. That may change down the road, but we don't know, right? So for me to want to do a construction loan now with, with my partner who I do construction financing with, it would have to be something dramatically um, special about that project. Like the land basis is like zero or, so, or something where there's some advantage uh, or they're going to sell like the cheapest condos in America and in New York and, you know, totally kind of undercut the market and make it some sort of affordable. Like there has to be some basis. We actually closed the condo inventory loan in March in Queens with a, with a, with a partner we invested with. And those units for sale will be like $700,000, right? So they're not going to be $2 million and $3 million and $5 million and $25 million. So I'm not nearly as concerned about the price points. So I like to see price points that are affordable to most people, not to like just the top echelon of a $40 million borrower that disappears when the market sort of uh, thins out. Um, was that little, schedule Was that schedule A pricing? That, that, the schedule, A pricing. schedule A pricing. I think, and all, I, mean, I think the most expensive unit was like a million two on a penthouse with all sorts of amenities, right? So, so I, I think we'll, again, nobody knows right now because a lot of things have changed in the last few months, but I'd rather, I'd rather be a lender on that than a lender on, you know, 50 condos that have to sell for 5 million bucks, right? So that's why I don't, I don't, I've never done those type of, uh, of, of um, transactions. So when I look at a lender's request today, there has to be some sort of realistic exit strategy. He's got to have experience. He can't be taking a shot. Um, there has to be some money in the deal. He's got to have equity in the game. And I don't mind taking the, the leverage risk if I have to, as long as I'm getting paid appropriately for it. And that's the key, to get paid appropriately for the risk you're taking. Let's talk about deal flow. Are you seeing more deals coming across your desk that don't make sense or or very much fewer deals that are coming across your desk that are maybe good opportunities? 
sometimes it's actually both funny enough right so a lot of, i think it takes time for borrowers to adjust meaning they were given such amazing terms over those two years it was so easy you know 80 percent 90 percent eight percent whatever that's over with and sometimes it takes borrowers time to adjust they weren't prepared to put in more equity they weren't prepared for such a high rate or low leverage so it's an adjusting process so i am seeing a lot of requests that i'll never fund because they're just too aggressive for me uh, but today, I don't think anybody will fund those requests, these high-leverage, low-rate requests. I think for the most part are gone, right? So where we're quoting is where there's a, 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 a reasonable le level of leverage along with a fair rate of return. So, and, where I'm, and where I'm quoting sort of higher leverage, like we have a, we have a potential borrower who's looking for 75% acquisition financing on a piece of land. But it turns out that it's really 50% financing because I think he's really buying it well. So he asked me for a quote, and I gave it to him. Now, I, you know, I sort of made a market for him. Now, he, I don't know if he liked the quote, but I said, you're asking for something that doesn't exist. I leverage land, right? It doesn't exist. So if you want it, like, here it is, right? So um, I think everything's deal by deal. You know, the example of the guy that's got a $3 million investment condo who wants $600,000, it's like a no-brainer, right? Uh, there's somebody who wants construction financing, more complicated. Somebody who wants rent-stabilized financing on a property in Manhattan, Brooklyn, also a little more complicated today, right? So it's very deal by deal. There are a lot of requests that I won't fund that don't make sense. But where something is making sense, we quote it. We, we, you know, we try our best to give a fair quote at a fair rate uh, with fair terms, and uh, we try to work for the business. Let's talk about the 2017 uh the uh, the the legislation that or sorry 2019 it was June June of last year that went into effect that the tenant and landlord uh, the rent stabilization laws uh, how did that legislation uh, affect you whether whether it was um, assets that you owned or or were invested in um, or deals that were coming across your desk that you decided to invest in you know. Uh, or decided not to because of that legislation. How did that, you know, overall affect into your uh, your business plan? Right. So the overall effects have been very negative. Right. Those laws were the most ill-conceived, poorest idea ever to come out of uh, state legislature with with the backing or the tacit implied implicit backing of the city council as well as our mayor and governor. Right. Great. Terrible. So, but preceding twenty nineteen, June of twenty nineteen. We hadn't bought anything in New York for a couple of years because the prices got out of control. Everything was, just, from my perspective, way, way too expensive with no way to make money, right? It wasn't that I was any smart. I'm not smart, right? I just, just figured out if everything's a three cap, then nothing's worth anything, right? And it turns out there was a catalyst to nothing to worth anything. So we've invested in a lot of multifamily rent stabilized properties in New York over the previous few years, and it's, it's been a, a terrible impact. I mean, you had apartments that had a lot of value in it. And the value is gone. It's been taken away. You can't get to it. And what I think the legislature and all these politicians have failed to recognize is that they've also not only taken away value from landlords and disincentivized landlords, of, of which the average landlord probably owns one building in New York, right? They don't, the average landlord, not some rich, greedy guy with five billion properties, right? So got a building at six units. He lives in an apartment one F, right? That's probably the average landlord. What the legislature has failed to recognize, other than destroying value and disincentivizing uh, work that would rehab properties and make them better for everybody, they've stolen assets from rent-stabilized tenants who live in 
higher-end neighborhoods like Park Slope and Greenpoint, Williamsburg, Upper East Side. You know, they had a very, very valuable asset in that rent-stabilized lease. An asset to them is now worth zero. So they didn't own anything, but they had an asset in the lease, in terms of a lease, that they could have, in fact, sold for 50000 100000 200000 know, whatever the, might, the price, the going price would be at that time. That's gone. So this, this law benefited nobody other than the politicians who remain in power who literally don't understand what the laws have done. They're, either they don't understand or they don't care. It's one or the other. But it, I can't imagine the job loss pre-COVID to construction workers whose owners are no longer building, you know, the corner bodega, the guys don't stop in every day to buy the sandwiches, the, the, uh, the, the, the hardware store, the, guy, the construction workers don't need to walk in and buy things. So it's had this effect. You know, architects have to fire people from their offices. You know, it's, it had a terrible effect, you know, again, pre-COVID from last June. And if you file, if you go back to last January or February, when you started to read the proposed legislations, you read it and you go, wow, this is terrible. It'll kill the business. And you say, okay, so they'll make it a little difficult. They won't make it, they won't kill everything. They'll make it a little difficult. But they, because the goalposts always move a little bit. And then you just adjust your business plan. You hold it for longer and you, you put some more money in. It works out over time. But here, they've taken away everything. And um, it's just it's mind-boggling how that happens still. And, and the value it's been value destruction, not value creation. I want to go back to your, your private lending business, your core business. Um, the, the money that you manage for your, you know, your clients that you pull together and you're, 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 you're deploying to projects. Uh, have the have the return profiles changed? Are their their expected returns have they changed now versus again? You know the projects you've been involved with in the past. Um, has anything changed with regards to what their expectations are with returns? Right. So to some degree, yes. So for better or worse, I've been fortunate enough to be able to give investors very nice risk-adjusted returns into a low rate environment. It was not easy. There weren't a million deals to do, but there, it was good enough that we were able to find enough opportunities uh, pre, you know, pre-COVID, we'll call it. Now, where there is more risk and more perceived risk, invest, some investors definitely want higher returns. Uh, some are happy with lower returns, provided the risk is lower. So it kind of runs the spectrum of investors. Everyone's got their own you know, calculus in their minds what they feel is good for them. And uh, I think for the most part, as long as we're providing a good risk-adjusted return on a leverage basis, the investors are always on board. Give me your six-month and 12-month outlook for the, the lending space in your world um, here coming down the pike. I, I can't get past Friday. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know what I mean? So uh, six-month, 12-month, I kind of think that most banks will still be pulling back on what they're doing for the most part. Case by case, they're definitely still funding you know, good borrowers with good business plans. The agencies are still funding good borrowers with good business plans, multifamily. But in the sort of bridge space, you know, specifically, you know, we had a big shock to the system, right? So obviously, we had a very big shock to the system, which hasn't gone away yet you know, from this COVID thing. It's not like a recession shock. It's a health health scare, right? That's sort of because of financial scare, right? You know, the stock market's in its own world because the stock market's liquid. You're up 20%, down 20% within a two-day span, and everyone spins their head wondering what happens. It doesn't happen in real estate. It's much slower. So banks aren't going to necessarily turn around on a dime and start giving high leverage again or 
neither will most private lenders, because if you're too high levered going into this, you're already out of problem, right? So I think six months from now, we're going to see more of what we're seeing today with being able to provide lower leverage at better rates with borrowers who have real business plans, right? Or people just have liquidity needs, but we'll still get better rates. And a year from now, probably the same, if I had to guess. Nothing, I mean, the, the real estate market, I don't think turns around and goes back to the heyday in 12 months from now, particularly in New York. Uh, you know, pre-COVID, New York was a problem. The rest of the country was humming along in real estate. Um, so I think New York has an issue, other issues not, you know, specific to economic issues to deal with first. We're going to close out this episode with the hard-hitting questions. These are the questions that we ask every one of our guests. Right. Uh, the first question I like to ask is, what is your why, Elliot? My why is I love taking care of my family. That's my why, right? So I'm very inspired by my wife, my children, my granddaughters. So they, they, they kind of keep me going, you know? You've been posting some pretty good, cute photos of your family uh, out in New Jersey. Very trying, we're trying. The granddaughter's on my oxygen. I got to keep it going, you know? Besides your alarm clock, what gets you out of bed every morning? I'm always up before the alarm clock. So it's been set for 545 for like last decade. And I'm probably up at 4.30 or 5, right? So I'm up before the alarm clock. Um, what else keeps me going? Work, obviously, right? We got to go find the next deal. We got to get. To, you got to pray in the morning. We got to exercise in the morning. We have to we get the day to read the paper, be on top of things. So, but I'd say, you know, work keeps me busy, you know, 10, 12 hours a day, even though I, I kind of joke that my weekend starts on Wednesday and I work two, three hours a week, but it's really not the case. Some people took me seriously. I was like, you're obnoxious. I go, no, I'm really kidding. I kind of work six days a week, you know, and uh, we put in a lot of hours. Oh, I didn't get the joke. All right. I got the joke, but work keeps me going. And, um, you know, just now we're the whole family's together in New Jersey. So I'm able to see my children and grandchildren on a daily basis. So except for one son who's in Brooklyn, he's a, you know, older adult, so he's there. But uh, I, I guess the family and the work keep me going. How do you like to pay it forward? So good question. So for the last 20 some odd years, I've been a, uh, a, um, member of a tuition assistance committee on a very large private school for 21 years. And I sort of helped parents navigate the extreme financial burden of paying private school tuition. And many people just you know, can't afford it, right? So we try to work plans out with them, how to best afford it, what they can't afford. So I've been doing that for like 21 years. I'm probably the longest running member of my community of doing something like that. So it makes me pretty silly, pretty stupid or pretty good. I don't know, right? But we've been doing that. That's something I do. Uh, for a long time. I hope to continue it for a long time. Um, I also have been giving guidance to younger brokers who periodically who either know me or their fathers know me or whatever, or my mothers know me. And um, they, they try to get some sort of career advice to the extent I can kind of help them. I'm always open to trying to figure out what they can do with their careers, how to make it better, or, um, or what to look for, pitfall, you know, the pitfalls. All the, like I've made like every mistake there is like five times, right? So there's that knowledge of making mistakes, which you can sort of impart on somebody, right? Which uh, is very helpful. So I'm doing that, and um, yeah, that's about it. How can our listeners get a hold of you or learn a little bit more about you? Uh, sure. So you can... Call me anytime you want, you know, 917-748-1955. You can email me at elliot at hequities.com. It's E-L-L-I-O-T at hequities.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. I try, I try my best to be out there a little bit just to uh, get some business and have a lot of fun. It's actually kind of fun to right? So uh, 
I'm around. Call, brainstorm. I'm always available. Elliot Horowitz, thanks so much for your time and providing your value today. Really appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me on, Nick. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to leave a rating and a review, which will help us introduce the podcast to other listeners. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, which will give you access to other episodes you may have missed. Lastly, if you'd like to learn more about investing alongside us, then head on over to valueaddedpodcast.com. Have a great day, and we'll talk to you next week.